Bibles, we're going to open to Galatians tonight. Galatians. We've been a long time in the Old Testament. Huh? It should be PM. Or oh, what do they have up? Uh, Ecclesiastes from last week. Ecclesiastes is done and dusted. It's finished. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> it's there in PM folder. I put it there tonight unless you guys deleted it. Did you find it? Okay. Someone deleted it. Ah. It'll just be a second because I think it's always better with the slides. Don't know, I always have to use them, but okay. So if someone will run that up to him. Okay. It's in Father Father. Okay. The file Father Father. A joke? <laughs> a joke. Uh, well, my little girl told me one the other day, and she says, why do mice always get their photograph taken? And I say, cheese all the time. <laughs> so that's my uh, six-year-old uh, year one level joke. Okay? She thinks it's very funny. Ah, <laughs> uh, Margie, we'll play that one. Okay. All right, so we're there. Yeah, fantastic. All right, Galatians chapter 4, and Galatians 4, verse, uh, we're going to read verse uh, 4 to 7. So if you turn there, we've just come off a, a series in Ecclesiastes. Before that, Ecclesiastes in Origins out of Genesis 1 to 11. And I thought, maybe I better turn to the New Testament. <laughs> and so I want to actually turn uh, to an area that's probably at the very closest heart to the New Testament that we can get. And anyway, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 7, it just says there, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, I just pray tonight, Lord, as we open your word here and in the weeks to come. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll put your blessing over and upon us. I pray, Father, that it would live. I pray that you would speak to the heart and life of every one of us here. And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, if uh, everything else falls short tonight, I pray there is one thing we can do. That's to exalt you and just elevate your name. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for every person that's here, no matter where, what their perspective, where their background is from. And I pray for your blessing, for your touch over them and upon them. And Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we just uh, crave and, and pray, Lord, for your presence just to be here. And Lord, um, just to abide in the house of the Lord, the house of God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to spend all the days out of the outside. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. We honor you for that. 
and to you be the praise. Amen. Okay. Um, I've uh, really just had in my heart uh, just there for the next um, uh, couple of months that I share anyway is just to um, share on what I, I call the Father Heart of God um, or understanding God as Father. And there's probably no theme probably out of all the Scripture and particularly of God that's more unique to the New Testament than what I, 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 we're going to look at in this various uh, time. Uh, there's, a, there's a theologian called J. Uh, I. Packer, and he wrote a book called Knowing God. And I just want to start maybe reading uh, just a, a little summary that he gives in that book. He goes, you can sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. If you want to, uh, to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly, distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. That's a very uh, profound uh, a statement, and it's that that I really want to uh, believe God directing me. And, um, you know, uh, Paul writes a letter here to the Galatians, and Galatians um, is a great book in the New Testament. It's not that long. You can read it very quickly. <laughs> but it's written to a bunch of uh, believers who had come to Christ. And what happened is some people had come in to their midst and were trying to lead them back to a very legalistic and outward understanding of God, uh, rather than a very relational and very experiential uh, uh, walk that they'd been involved in. Now, some people actually, uh, outside the Pentecostal churches, they will look down on experience at times. People will do that. But Christianity is very relational and very experience experience oriented. if I can say that uh, carefully. Um, uh, you know, as the Bible doesn't say, be transformed by the removal of your mind. It actually says we need to think, uh, which is a novel thought for some Pentecostal people. But um, what happens is we are to understand that Christianity is very relational. And what had happened, uh, these particular Christians had a, a bunch of people come in the midst. We, we call them Judaizers or people that were trying to bring them back under a very legal understanding of their relationship with God. And it, it began very subtly and it had progressed. Probably this is summed up best in Paul's letter to uh, there back in chapter 3. And uh, I'll read it out of the ESV first. It just goes, O foolish Galatians. Uh, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this, only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having been gone by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, that's good. But I think the message gets this a lot better. It captures Paul's frustration. J.B. Phillips' translation captures this. Actually, J.B. Phillips' translation starts off and goes, Oh, idiots of Galatia. Uh, that's how it begins. It sort of captures it. But the message is good. Oh, you crazy Galatians. It goes, Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses, you dimwit? It goes, 
Something crazy has happened to you. For it is obvious that you no longer had the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to, to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Uh, or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness for only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what has begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose in the world you're ever going to perfect it? That sort of captures it. Okay? Now, in other words, uh, a, legal, uh, a legalistic uh, understanding of God is a very inferior, immature approach to God. And unfortunately, the Galatians had begun following this list of do's and don'ts. And uh, they, had a, they started to develop particularly an Old Testament understanding of their relationship to God, conforming to outward externals and focusing uh, on everything outwardly rather than what is inward transformation. And they, they did this because this particular group of people came in. Now, what they failed to see was the Old Testament uh, was actually a book to drive them to this new relational experience with God in the New Testament. And, and Christianity is relational. It's relational. It's experiential. Yes, it will make sense to your reason. But we've got to come back. It is very, very relational. And they had begun to lose this and turn back. Now, the Old Testament w- reveals some wonderful things of God. It reveals God is creator. And that makes understanding of the world we live in. It says that God is the lawgiver. He's the one that uh, knows how we should behave and respond and outwork our lives. The Bible talks about the omnipotence of God or that God has all power, the omniscience of God. God has all knowledge, the omnipresence. It talks about God's sovereignty, that God is holy. So Isaiah and Isaiah 6 caught a vision of God, holy, holy, holy. And uh, the goodness, the justice of God, the mercy It captures a lot of things in the Old Testament. And we looked at those when we did a series here on Sunday nights called Awesome Science. But what happens is a great danger that with a lot of theology, it can still end up very remote and cold. And, you know, you can have all your theology right and still be very uh, remote and cold to God. And, you know, uh, the only option when you have a God with all those wonderful uh, 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 attributes is you, you, you know, is an attitude that you must submit, you must do service and obey this God. Probably the group that is probably closest to this understanding of what Paul is warning us about is modern day Islam. It's because uh, here's a picture of the Kaaba uh, in Saudi Arabia, and they are masses of people uh, at the Hajj, at, at the Kaaba uh, in Saudi Arabia. And in modern understanding of Islam is that there are five pillars of faith and you must diligently obey uh, this uh, very, um, if I can say, uh, very um, obedient style faith. And they hold all those things that I just had there. In fact, if you read the Quran, they are all there, all those things. 
And what you were left with, you're left with a faith expression that's probably closest to what Paul was talking about. It, 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 it's, it, it's very attractive to people. Uh, it's actually got six of the population on the planet under its banner. And it's got a very works approach to God. Uh, but yet what happens is God becomes very transcendent, very remote and cold. And you can clinically go through the motions of that faith. And I'm not just talking just about Islam there. Now, in verse 4 of what we read, it actually says, verse 3, In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In, in the Greek language, that's a word called stachion. And it's a word uh, that actually refers to something that's all in a, in a nice straight line that you need to obey. And, uh, and so... Uh, these elementary principles. Sometimes it's even referred to principalities and powers in a heavenly dimension that sit behind those things as well. A Colossians 2.8 is a classic of that. And so it's, it's perhaps worth mentioning here what, what, what happens is that approach sometimes to God leaves God very remote and cold to humanity. Uh, it makes uh, it's very attractive for some people um, is because there's this nice orderly stokion, this order, the five pillars of faith in Islam, for example, that everyone can fall in line and diligently, uh, I was nearly going to say, work their butts off to obey, okay? Uh, I was nearly going to say that, but I said it anyway. <laughs> okay, now with this here, uh, what happens is, uh, there's a group in the world, and I've referred to them several times here on Sunday nights, but they're called the New Atheists. Now, you've got to understand, New Atheists are mostly people that have had a bad experience with religion. Now, even growing up in a system of faith, uh, or, or, or had an experience, uh, I've picked this author because he's probably the most well-known, Richard Dawkins. If anyone's ever read The God Delusion, um, in that book, he actually tells them experience that he had growing up in the religious system that he was raised in. And in fact, he, he doesn't spell out all the details. It's rather gray in the book, but he was abused by someone within that religious system that he was in physically. Now, that, uh, he, he refers to that in the book, but it certainly has made him very caustic to what he understands of, of this uh, you know, trying to obey the great transcendent God out there. So in the God delusion, it's only in the second chapter, he says this, and I thought I'd read it to you tonight. It goes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philosophical, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, uh, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, uh, is, uh, I thought I'd, I'd read that to you uh, because I, I think you might pick up, they are the words of a very wounded and very caustic person. Now, with that, um, the only advice I could maybe make to him is perhaps he should have started in the New Testament and read his New Testament and then got back to try and understand the Old Testament. And perhaps he would have come up with a very different... He has read the Old Testament. 
I think even his definition there, many people would argue, well, that's certainly not the God I read about in the Old Testament. But for him, that is. Now, he's very proud of that definition. I've seen him on, on, on uh, media actually quoting it and uh, et cetera. Um, but, you know, sadly what happens is what you believe about God through your life is those attitudes and behavior will then outwork from that particular position. And so we need to know very strongly where we come from in our approach to God. Now, the New Testament will not allow you to uh, come up with a distorted view of God as that definition. You see, Jesus Christ consistently revealed in the New Testament that God should be seen as Father. That's how He revealed God in His teaching, in His demonstration, in His whole life. And, you know, I want you to note that of those attributes of God I mentioned above, of all those attributes, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, sovereignty, self-sufficiency, we could name a whole list of them, is what happens, uh, it's very difficult for us to get our rational minds around those. But when you come to the concept of Father, you can put your arms around a Father, is you can embrace a Father relationally. And you see, the New Testament actually uh, uh, leaves... It accepts all of that teaching, but it brings us right down to this relationship with the Father. Now, I want to say a few things here for us all. You know, Jesus could have uh, started the Lord's Prayer this way, Our Mother, who art in heaven. He could have done that. And, uh, and you know, if you go to the Old Testament and you look at all the cultures that surrounded Israel, all of them had female deities. I, I, I can't think of an exception. And uh, you'll read of Astarte, Asherah, many of them you'll read about in the Old Testament. Diana, who occurs in Acts, uh, the book of Acts 19, Isis, uh, the goddess within Egypt, Ishtar, uh, Shingmu of China. All all the the peoples around always had female deities. And what is interesting of this, uh, for the common people, uh, these, these deities were worshipped with the life cycle of life, fertility rituals, magic, all of these things. But of the common people, they were usually their favorite god, was these female deities, historically. Now, does that mean we should dissect our Bibles and, and go call God it, uh, like some people have attempted? Or, or should we, you know, call God the, uh, the misogynist of what Richard Dawkins' definition is? Um, I want to say a few things because I think it's important as we just proceed. You know, Genesis 5, 1 and 2 tells us very clearly that God created men and women both in the image of God. Now, let, let me read this to you. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Now, what that means, and, and, and maybe I should keep reading, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, Genesis uh, 1.28, uh, 1.26 tells us that man was created in the image of God. And so what happens here is God, we could say, all the uh, attributes of femininity are a part of God's nature as well. Now, I don't find in the Scripture where God is afraid of that, um, I know some people may have a problem. Let me throw a few things out scripturally for you. It's because God's never afraid of using feminine gender as he relates to his people in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few. If you remember in the Bible, a woman was created as a helper in Genesis 2.18. But when you come to the New Testament, 
is the Holy Spirit is referred to as the helper. Now, you're going to find many attributes there within the Holy Spirit actually um, uh, parallel to what we look at in women's lives as they move and respond. Yet the Holy Spirit is always referred by the masculine. But God's not afraid uh, to use that language to identify. Uh, in Genesis 17.1, in quite a number of places in the Old Testament, God reveals himself as El Shaddai. Uh, and most translations go, that is God Almighty. And that's true. It's probably about the best translation or God is the one of all provision, something of that nature. But many theologians believe that comes from the Hebrew word shad, which is usually translated as breast or mountain. So it can be translated this way, I am the breasted one. In other words, the picture is God is our total provision or sufficiency as a little baby that sits on the breast of a woman. But of course, that would frighten some people, and so God Almighty is what we have. But I don't think God's afraid of using uh, feminine gender is because it reflects the image of God. Uh, there weren't two races. There was only one race of humanity, male and female. Now, so I say this is because I believe that only the, em the image of God can be truly reflected in both male and female. So marriage should be the true reflection of the image of God. Let me throw a few more out to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.18 says, The Lord says he carried or birthed Israel as a mother gave birth to a child. Uh, in Psalm 91 verse 4, God pictures himself as a mother bird, pulling the chickens up under his wings, if I can put it that way. Uh, Isaiah 46.3 tells that God carried Israel in his womb. Now, now that's pretty radical language because it's just using exactly uh, feminine gender to relate this. And today's Mother's Day, so it's interesting to share those concepts. Isaiah 66.13 tells us that God comforts Israel like a mother would a child. So I just put a number of those down. It's because God is never afraid to identify himself with femininity, but he never reveals himself as such. He reveals himself as Father to us. And that is very important, and we're going to explore that in the weeks to come. But I believe that fatherhood of God is perhaps, uh, in, in the New Testament, is probably one of the most important positions that the Scripture leads us to. Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, when the fullness of time had come, uh, the climax of history, the consummation of the ages, the book of Hebrews will say it, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born uh, under the law. And I want you to notice... I'll just read that again. God sent forth his son. In other words, the inference is he is father. And at the consummation of the ages or the climax, the fullness of time, God sent forth uh, his son. Uh, in other words, his son was the very deity of God. He is the father. He is the son. And that was especially manifest when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3, 13 to 17. But he's born of a woman. He's flesh and blood, just like us. And so uh, it unveils his humanity. And he has the same limitations and the frailties of our humanity. And he is born in the world. And he's born under the law, which means that he, he, he never was, uh, broke the law. In fact, he, he always uh, was very faithful to it. But what happens? He was always the law's master. He was never the servant of the law, law, if I can put it that way. He was always the law's master. 
Now, that is important because in the Galatian picture, they're trying to bring the Christians back under a very legal understanding of faith. Now, when we study the Old Testament, God is revealed by a special name, Yahweh. We sang the song tonight, Yahweh, Yahweh. And that song is, uh, is a song that actually uses a special name for God from the Old Testament, which is the name for God in covenant as the eternal God, the eternal one who is totally sovereign, uh, is self-existent, has all power, is, is holy, but it's the one who brought Israel into covenant. Now, the result of that was the Jews in history began to uh, regard the word Yahweh with such fear they would never even read it as they read the text of the Bible. They would never pronounce it uh, aloud for the fear that somehow they could blaspheme or denigrate the holy name of God. And so they would always say Adonai or our word Lord, uh, lowercase Lord. And so they would speak that. And through the course of their history, God became so transcendent, so high, so magnificent for them, yet so holy, so out of touch with humanity, it actually departed totally relationally from a relational concept of God. And, and, and they departed from that. And so what actually happened uh, for them, their perspective of God, they would never, ever call God Father. That, that, that is just like, um, uh, it, it's something that just would, would not even rationally cross uh, an Orthodox Jew's mind. Uh, to, uh, maybe to think of God as Father, as Creator of all things, yes, but never relationally. Never like Jesus depicted this relationship in the New Testament. Now, this is perhaps the greatest observable difference between true Christianity and what we call religious Christianity, and particularly Judaism. And it could be said that Father is the New Testament's word, the New Testament or the New Covenant's name for God. And that's extremely important. And so for this reason, out of all the revelation the New Testament gives, is the perfect Father is probably one of the, the, the most profound, where God is depicted as being faithful, caring, generous, thoughtful, interested, respectful, giving guidance, available, demonstrating integrity, training His very children. Now, that's the perspective of the New Testament. It's a little foreign from Richard Dawkins' definition. Now, with that, it could be said that people then actually draw their view of God often from their own families, from their own fathers. And for some people, that has tragically led to a very uh, unfortunate uh, uh, way of approaching God because they were raised in a situation where they had a bad experience with their father. And so what happens for them as, as they, they then transfer that on their understanding from God, and when they come across this term in New Testament Christianity, they freeze. It's because they experience nothing but bad experience. Floyd McClung, in his book, The Father, Heart of God, he puts this this way, and I'll read this to you. Is it any wonder that many people have a distorted view of God? They seem through the grid of their own experiences, and when those experiences have been hurtful, it contributes to a wrong impression of God. Many young people react violently when they talk about when you talk about God as Father. They are spiritual orphans, hurt, lonely, confused, and separated. It's because their understanding of God was actually, uh, or, or of a father, was a tragic failure, or, or, or 
very much running short. Now, I want to say to all of you tonight, we're going to come back and explore that a little bit further. But I want to say tonight, if you had a, a bad experience of your raising or, or where, you know, you had a father who was an alcoholic or, or maybe who was abusive, you need to put all those impressions away. That you need to actually discard those and come to the New Testament as the New Testament reveals God, as Jesus revealed the Father. But I want to say this even more for you, and this is where it gets a little tough. If you had a fantastic father who was just wonderful and loved you and nurtured you and was there for you and, and was there in life, uh, and you drew a fantastic version, can I still say to you, the Father in heaven is better than that ever that earthly father ever was too. You hear what I'm saying? In fact, bad or good is you've got to put them all aside. And so God reveals himself in the New Testament. The perspective of God given is one of warmth, of protection, of tenderness, of loving provision. One who speaks positive words over your life. Some people were raised in families where they never received a positive word all their life. But yet, in the New Testament, it says God the Father speaks positive words. If you remember when Jesus was baptized, the Father's words over him was, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. But God wants to speak those words over your life. And, and so, uh, one who extends a loving touch. And so, this perspective of, of God that Jesus gives in the New Testament is... is is, is where God is all of this warmth and, 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 and just relational uh, wonder. If you, if you come to Jesus' very first words he ever spoke, ever recorded in Scripture, is as a young boy, 13 years of age, they found him in the temple. And he was there, and he was both asking questions, and he was dialoguing with the rabbis, the teachers. And his parents found him because they got halfway back to Nazareth, and he wasn't in there either camp, mums or dads. And so they had to turn all the way back. And so they're pretty, pretty worried, a bit upset. And they walk in and they said to him, where have you been? And he says, he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be in father's house. And right from the, uh, the youngest of age, Jesus revealed this relational uh, warmth of understanding to God, alternating, or, or, you know, eternal God. Uh, he had uh, this relationship that he shared. You know, every Jewish boy, every man, every day of their lives, if you know anything of Judaism, every day they pray and quote what is known as the Jewish Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is, our, is, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, you know, it's wonderful theology. You know, the oneness of God, uh, uh, Judaism, Christianity, are monotheistic. But what is radical is Jesus came raised in that culture of this transcendent God where they would not even utter the name. And Jesus starts saying, my father's house. It's like he's got this warmth of relationship and the disciples just looked at this and they wondered and it staggered them. And then, you know, they heard him pray. They heard him pray in the garden. They could not believe how he prayed. 
And as he prays in the garden, he says, Oh, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now, they'd never heard anyone pray that way. Oh, Abba, Father. You know, that is Aramaic. That is the language of Jesus. That's the language of the disciples. That's the language of Israel at that time, the Aramaic language. And, you know, there's something for people. You know, can I just say, it's like uh, some of the guys, the YWAM guys. You know, there's sometimes with prayer uh, or with Jit and Karen, the Mandarin speakers, I just say, when it comes, you know, we can dialogue in life, but there's something funny. Can I, can I just say, when we come to prayer, it either works two ways. You want to speak a transcendent language that we call tongues, or you want to pray in the tongue you were raised with. It's just, it's just what's most natural, if I can just say that. And, you know, here is Jesus and the disciples' most natural tongue was Aramaic. And this word, Abba, is a very strong word. It's the closest in the Aramaic language for what we have to daddy, but maybe even a little more so, or papa, uh, if you're in uh, Russia or something of that nature. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I'll just come there in a sec, but this probably illustrated to me one time, and I, I knew someone that was on the West Bank of Jerusalem. They're on the West Bank, the Arab Quarter, and there was Jews, uh, uh, you know, some Jewish soldiers or, you know, uh, Israelite, Israel guys who were soldiers doing guard duty. And, of course, there's a lot of hostility between the Arab world and the Jewish world there. And what happened is these little Arab boys, only young kids like Haley's age, a little older, and they were giving cheek to these Israel soldiers and even throwing the odd stone. And what happened, they'd been doing this for some time, and this person witnessed this. And what happened is the, one of the Israeli guards, he really got so annoyed with this. And in the end, he just got his gun and he just motioned. He wasn't going to do anything. He wasn't doing anything wrong. But he just motioned towards these, these kids. In other words, to get him to, put, to shut up and put them in the place. As he motioned, the, sort of like, you know, as a soldier would do. And suddenly the little kids got real frightened. And they ran off. And, and, and the person who was speaking to, they heard him. Abba, Abba, Abba. As they ran off to dad who just lived in the block behind. It's because it's, it's that word. It's the word that you couldn't get a, the closer word to that in the New Testament. And so, uh, you know, is, is Jesus actually, they never forgot his words. Even when he descended uh, or resurrected from the dead, Jesus said uh, to Mary at this stage, he just goes there in John 20, 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to your brothers and say, I am sending to my Father and your Father. My Father and your Father. And this concept, it just rattled them uh, of this familiarity, this relational uh, walk that Jesus had. D.T. Niles wrote a book called What is the Church For? And I want to read you the quote from him. There is only one religion in the world which says God is your Father and mine, and that is the Christian religion. You do not even find that in the Old Testament. And the New Testament tells us that only people who believe that God is Father and those who know Him in Jesus Christ. Now, Christ came to bring us into that understanding, that relationship. This is what He transfigured probably more than any other understanding of God in the New Testament. And so Galatians, we'll take this just a little further in 4.5, and it says that, that this happened, that Jesus came 
to redeem those who were under the law, those who had lived their whole life with God outward and cold and remote, but a list of understanding of God, of do's and don'ts, of rules, of, of this experience, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. And so what the Scripture says here is God's going to change us that we begin to cry, Abba, Father, and then we can do this because we are adopted as sons. Now, that's not a Jewish concept. That's a Roman one. Jews didn't even have an understanding, really, of adoption, but the Romans sure did. And the Romans understood that they could take an adult. If I was a wealthy man, if I had a family name, and I never had an offspring, I could actually pick someone out there in the world and if I deemed they, they were of, of, of suitable uh, a character and type, I could take them as an adult, uh, and although they were once alien and foreign, and I could adopt them with a public ceremony into my family. And as I did, all old debts would be cancelled. Uh, the, the individual involved would lose all legal rights to their old families. They gave legitimate rights as a new son. They became an heir of that father's estate. And they would become legally the absolute son of that new father. And if anyone's ever seen the movie uh, Judah Ben-Hur or the movie Ben-Hur, which I have pictured here, is if you remember as, and, and when the scenes of the galleys occur, there's a great naval battle. And in that battle, uh, a, a very high, the Roman commander by a name called Arius actually falls over the ship, over the side of the ship with heavy army. And because he'd actually unchanged, unchained Ben-Hur because he admired him, Judah Ben-Hur actually swam and saved his life. And as he brought him up out of the depths, he thought he'd lost the naval battle. But Judah Ben-Hur saved his life. And then what happens? He will adopt Ben-Hur as the son of Arius in a public ceremony exactly as they would in Roman times. And it's depicted in that movie, if you've ever seen that movie. And Paul gives us this, this understanding that we receive adoption. We receive a new legal standard, a, a new name. We receive a new family relationship that is not this cold, remote side. It's actually so warm where God is actual Father. And a new image, we get a new identity. And so we receive adoption. Now the inference is, if you're adopted, you're once of a foreign nature. You're of another family. You really didn't belong to the family of a God's family. But Paul says, even though you were of a foreign nature, an alien nature, is God adopted you into his family. So Galatians 4, 6, for you, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's what happens is God takes us and we begin to use the same language that Jesus used as he ministered. This transformation of a relationship like no other rabbi had ever demonstrated is now, is what happens, because you've been adopted, you are going to cry, Abba, Father. You're going to, or if I can call Father, Father, or, or Daddy, Father, is God's going to transfigure your relationship. You've now been adopted, and that occurs when God's own Holy Spirit, His own nature, this is no just adoption as even Roman understanding. This is even more radical is, you know, in a parallel passage, Romans 8, 15 and 16, I'll just read that. It goes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abbot Father. 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, and, and God does an adoption that actually is so much more radical than even Roman adoption, where they took a legal son of age and the, uh, with a public ceremony made him his son, God takes his own nature, his own spirit, and breathes that into our lives so that we literally carry God's nature within ours. 2 Peter 1.4, you may become partakers of the divine nature. As I'm sure you've heard of the story of Pinocchio. Ever, ever heard the story of Pinocchio? And if you remember Pinocchio and, and Geppetti, uh, good old Geppetti, what a wonderful one. Of course, Disneyland drew all its, oh, to help us go wish upon a star makes no difference who you are, or whatever, you, 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 know, you, you know what I mean? Um, well, that is taken from Pinocchio, because Pin, uh, Geppetti made a wooden boy, because he never had a child. And he made that wooden boy, and he made the puppet. And one night, as a lonely old man with no wife, is what happened, as he stood there and looked at the night sky, he wished upon a star that God would give him a boy. Or I think it might have been the fairy godmother. <laughs> I'm not sure. And anyway, what happened is suddenly the wooden boy comes to life. And that wooden boy is Pinocchio. And if you remember, his nose used to grow and there's all wonderful little parts of that uh, because he wasn't a very truthful little boy. And what happens in the end, if you remember correctly, is at the end of the story, Geppetti has, has, has a final wish and Pinocchio turns into a real boy. Friends, this is more radical than this. As Galatians says, that what God does is he takes Geppetti's own DNA and he puts it in Pinocchio. So he just wasn't, you know, a hostile outsider. As God brings you, the Pinocchio, and God breathes his very own DNA into you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, suddenly you will call God Abba father. Now, friends, I, I know people can say, they've got all these definitions of salvation. People that come out and make a prayer at the front of the church. I've seen a lot of people pray at the front of the church and never, never do anything. I look at their lives and I'd say they're not Christian at all. I've seen bundles of them do that. Uh, you know, some people go, oh, there's one certain church group, they go, if someone speaks in tongues, they've got to be saved. Well, friends, there's, there's certain cult groups like the Mormons that believe in speaking in tongues. Can I just say that? I'll just be really honest with you. Is that what makes someone Christian or not Christian? Other people come along and go, well, you know, is, is, uh, what, what makes you a Christian is if you go to church. It's sort of like saying, well, if you go live in a garage, you become a car. Um, well, friends, coming to church is not going to make you a Christian. Uh, hopefully you might rub shoulders with some Christians. But, um, but friends, that's not what makes Some people say to me, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I go, yeah, that's true. You don't have to. But I, for 20 years of my life, I wasn't a Christian. When I finally did become Christian, I thought, well, I want to go to church because I'm Christian. There's a very big difference, friends. Those who say that I want to go to church, well, you don't have to go to church to be Christian, but if you are Christian, you want to go to church. <laughs> you, you follow what I'm saying? Because there's something that's happened inwardly. It's happened inwardly. And, you know, friends, I lived 20 years of my life as a heathen, complete heathen. I never prayed in my life. But I'll tell you what I noticed is when my life, as I read that Bible in the desert of Western Australia, and I went out and I prayed for the first time in my life, 
And you know, something bizarre happened without any church. I didn't go to church for the first 12 months as a Christian. Never stepped foot inside one. You know, I, 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 in a way, I, it was just me and the Bible in the desert of Western Australia. But I'll tell you one thing that happened to me. In my prayer life, there was a moment of time I started calling God Dad. I started, I started, it just, I don't know how come. I, and, and, you know, before I ever, first time I ever come to church, I finally walked into a church because I wanted to go to church. And I finally came in. But, you know, I was still already using that language. You know, in a crazy sense, is this happened to my life? And I didn't realize Pinocchio turned into a real boy. And I carried God's DNA. And suddenly I'm going, oh, Father, in my prayer life. Now, no one taught me that. It just came. Now, this is how I just want to say, is, is this just came, is, just says, Abba, Father. And suddenly, without even knowing it, I began to actually live out as Jesus had actually imparted to his disciples. And no one taught me to do that. You know, if I can just say the outcome of adoption, son, and then I want to say one more thing as we just before we finish tonight. We have a new nature, the very hereditary nature of, of the Father, the very Holy Spirit. And God now suddenly becomes intimately Father. He's not remote master. He's Father. You know, is all I need to do is let that divine nature grow. That's all I've got to do. The Father loves me as he loves Christ. This is my beloved Son whom I'm well pleased. A son obeys because he loves. We don't serve in fear as slaves. Is, is, is the reason a Christian wants to obey God because he loves God. He's in relationship. I'm an heir. We have an inheritance. We have a future. Slaves don't have a future, Paul says. Is, 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 you know, they're going to get nothing from all their labor, but a son sure does. We have a new family. We have brothers and sisters who have had this same experience as well. Now they call upon Father, our new family, which should be a family of love, with incredible security. Only bad fathers throw their children out of house. And even a prodigal children, the father will receive back, as we'll see in this series. And so Galatians 4, 7 says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. So let me just finish this way. I've met some people go, we're all sons of God. I was in an alternate community one time, and this person, you know, was quite hostile to my Christian uh, expression. He said to me, he goes, we're all sons of God. Now, what know what they're saying. In other words, uh, you're no better than me. And I would agree with him totally there. But I do know what the scripture says. It says, but all who receive him, who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And see, when I come to you and I go, are you Christian? And we've got, you know, a diverse bunch of people. And, you know, people come for our meal. And, and we welcome uh, people, even the people that come and go straight after the meal, we, we welcome them. We want them here, uh, even if that's their level of even commitment. Um, well, one thing they're going to get is they go, well, the church is not that bad. We get a bit of a feed there. <laughs> that's probably a good thing. You understand what I mean? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I probably shouldn't even mention that. But, but can I just say here, is, is this what makes a Christian? God gives you a right to become a child of God when you receive and you'll know when you're received is because your prayer life will go different. It's no longer God is remote and out there. And, and no longer is Christianity do's and don'ts and rules and, and just going through legalism. 
This is the ultimate test. And I want to read this to you as we finish. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. This is the test. This is the exam. It just goes there to see whether you are in the faith. You know, test yourselves. He says it twice, just so you get the point. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? What's it mean to have Jesus Christ in you? I tell you what, friends, is when you get out there on a starry night and there's no one there and you just got to look up to your heaven and you've got to go, Oh, Father, all glory to your name. And friends, the moment, the moment that happens in your life and you come through Jesus Christ, God works a transaction within you and you can't help using that language, Abba, Father, unless indeed you fail the test. And there's some people in churches, unfortunately, they can't say that. You know, they can do all the parts. They can all do all out, and they can even raise their hands if they wanted to. But friends, is the reality is they don't live a life where God's Father. They can't look up in the sky and go, oh, I have a Father. You are just wonderful. God, what you did in the life of Christ just blows my mind. And you know, what happens there? We live in a world, and the inference is this, that you're adopted. It means that we're all part of another family before we came to this family, at least I was. Dan, I appreciated so much Dan's story there tonight. Uh, you know, because you just see a young guy like that, and you go, oh, well, uh, you know, these YWAM guys, they're just all little churches, they're growing up through church. No, friends, God's into the radical business. And what happens is it comes and breathes the breath of life in this young guy. And he knows that he knows. And he still has struggles. He's a good guitarist. You need to hear him play guitar one night in church. We'll arrange that for you some stage. But, um, but if I can just say, I was of another family. And we're going to come back to this. A great Fagan, a spiritual Fagan that I was a part of a family where I was just a little Oliver Twist adopted into that family. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working at work in the sons of disobedience. We'll come back to that, that great rotten father who's just abusive, and he's the one that actually uh, would, would twist and be intoxicated and, and beat and damage his children. And that's where we're going in this series. So, boom, where it's just started here is because I want to come to the very conclusion of tonight is we've received Christ, and you know if you have. This is the ultimate test. Let me read this again. Are you crazy Galatians? You crazy Galatians. Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened for you? For it is obvious, Paul says, that you no longer have the crucified Jesus clear focus in your lives. Christianity is relational. It's experiential. It's a day-by-day day walk with Abba Father. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set you free clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? How did it begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? That sure didn't attract me to Christianity. I don't know about you, friends. And it goes, uh, you know, for only crazy people would think you could complete by your own effort what was begun by God. If you weren't smart and strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could ever perfect it? And so what happens is we come and we come with this new life. Now, I said this, and I just want to end this way tonight, uh, just to lay the whole foundation. You might remember I said Islam is actually probably the closest thing to this stokia. 
living by this rules, your five pillars of faith. And I don't want to be critical of Islam. If anyone knows me, I actually have a real heart for the Islamic world. And the reason I have a heart for the Islamic world because the six of the people are under that planet of that belief system of trying to work their heads off to be right with God. And I think they need to know God as Father. And you know, there's a book I read once, and it was written by a woman who was raised as an Islamic princess. And I want to read you just one quote from her. Her name is Bilquis Sheik, and she was a daughter within Islam. She wrote a book, and I want to read you this one quote, as she actually picked up a Bible for the first time and read a New Testament as all her life she had read the Quran. And she reached over to the bedside table. I reached over to the bedside table where I kept the Bible and the Quran side by side. I picked up both books and lifted them, one in each hand. Which, Father, I said, which is your book? Then a remarkable thing happened. Nothing like that had ever occurred in my life in quite this way. For I heard a voice inside my being, a voice that spoke to me as clearly as if I were repeating the words in my inner mind. They were fresh, full of kindness, yet at the same time full of authority. And it asked this, in which book do you meet me as Father? And that Islamic princess, without ever finding a Christian, accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour and began a relationship with her God as Father. I want us just to bow our heads and we're just going to pray now. Father, we thank you tonight. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for every person in this room. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for what you did in my life. Lord, you adopted me into a family I had no right to be within. Father, of, a, of another nature, uh, another lifestyle. Father, you gave me a new identity. And Lord Jesus Christ, as you spoke into my life, and I began to use these words, Abba, Father, relationally walk with you. Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray for every person in this room. I pray, Lord, they too, every one of them would know you relationally this way. And Jesus, we just thank you for how you've revealed your Father to us. Lord Jesus Christ, I praise you, I honor you, and just thank you for your work here tonight. In your wonderful name. Just why every head's bowed. And if that's maybe you, you don't pray that way. You know, you attracted Christianity, but you've never actually prayed, Abba, Father. You've never had that close relational understanding of God. And you would just like us to acknowledge that with you and go, you know, you can actually receive tonight and receive to be a son of God. Now, if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand just there and go, yeah, I, I want you to pray. I'm not going to bring you to the front or anything that way. But if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand just for a moment. Uh, just for a second. I'll just leave it just a moment of time. I just want to pray with those people. That's fine if we all have got this relationship. That's just wonderful. Amen. We'll leave it right there. If you want prayer after the service tonight, we'll pray for healing. We'll do anything of that nature. Now we come up and we just close with a song. And so, Ian, you want to just come up there and let's sing the Father. Amen. <laughs>